You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, indeed you are. Well, 70 delegates from power stations and the coal mines which supply them are meeting here in Sydney to talk about the future. There are members here from over 25 facilities in Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and Western Australia. Here's Vice President of the Calide Power Lodge, Shane Rusty McGovern, from the Calide Power Station in Billawila in Queensland. I asked him what he was getting out of talking to other power station workers. It has been good to get together, being able to talk face to face with Tony, Mar and Chris Bowen and James Chisholm and that. Um, we're realising we're not isolated. We all seem to be having the same issues, whether you're in WA, Victoria or Queensland, the momentum is is all rolling over the top of us. We have been struggling to get a voice, which is a bit depressing really, considering energy is the cornerstone of the economy. In any given day, we're still propping up the lion's share of energy needs, but we're sort of being, no one wants to address us as to what's going to become of the coal-fired generation. All the workers are feeling uncertainty. We can't look beyond the next few years. Do we buy a new house for the family? Do we take that risk? We're all sort of treading water with our lives. We're talking about people trying to decide whether to relocate their whole family. Do we get in front of the bow wave? Or do we sit and get drowned by it? Um, do our houses going to be worth anything in these regional communities? Do we sell them now? You cannot get a rental in the town of Billawila. You just can't get one. But there's houses for sale everywhere. I've got three young kids, so I've got to consider their future. What opportunities are going to be around in these communities? I think it's going to hurt the next generation a lot more than potentially me. I'm coming up to 50 very shortly, so I might make it through. Um, Transition, it's a buzzword at the moment. There's no real, that we are seeing on the ground. Obviously James Chisholm has showed us in today that there's been a lot of planning work going on in the background. It'll be great to see some of that come to fruition. Now, that reference to James Chisholm. He's from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He spoke about what plans the federal government had for coal-fired power station workers. Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen also spoke at the meeting, along with experts in carbon capture and storage and making hydrogen from coal. Mark McAuliffe from the Latrobe Valley in Victoria where they spent a billion dollars a few years ago to make hydrogen from coal for the Tokyo Olympics, told me what he was getting from talking to other delegates. Mark works at the Yalorn Open Cut Mine, which supplies the local Yalorn power station. Yeah, so the, the main thing I've got from talking to other delegates from around Australia is the fact that once the coal-fired power has been phased out, is another industry to come into that their area for people to have jobs to go to another industry and like I stated in there before not just a small industry where it's making solar panels for four years and then it's done 
I'm talking about an industry that's going to be viable long term for the employment of, of, of the workers in the Latrobe Valley in particular when Yulon shuts in 28 and Lyang shuts in 35. Dan Smith and Peter Compton from the Mount Piper power station in Lithgow in New South Wales told me what they were getting from talking to other power station workers. We're basically all in the same boat. Our, our communities, our families, everything, we're all in the same boat. We're all facing the same pressures and uncertainty. I think we all have the same frustration level too. Yeah, it's probably a big thing that I've taken out of it is that, that this is a lot of pent up anger and it's been good for people to listen to us. To, to, to have the minister yesterday, James this morning, that it, that's that's been very sort of good to, to be able to have that. And the open forum yesterday afternoon where, yeah, it did get a little bit heated, but it was somewhat respectful and getting the views out. It was, it's interesting because you're actually quite insular until you come to here and you have blokes from Queensland and Victoria and all that kind of thing, and they're facing exactly what you're facing. It's, uh, it's actually quite um, eye-opening. I asked all these fellas what effect the influx of renewables into the grid was having on their work. Here's Shane Rusty McGovern again from the Calli Power Station in Biloela in Queensland. The units were designed as baseload stations. Not all units were created equally. There are different designs for different effect. Gladstone, in layman's terms, I describe it as the V8 of power stations. And back when we had large peaks in the grid, it could ramp rate very fast and absorb big peaks. Now the peaks are smaller, so as you can imagine to run a V8 costs more and they're only absorbing small peaks, so the profitability went down. Calides was designed to be the four-cylinder diesel of the, where you just revved it up and sat there all day. With the influx of renewables dispatching during the day and they want them to dispatch, we're being forced to drive down in load and we're getting down so low now that we're getting into territory where things can get unstable, flame stability, to be putting them through their paces like we're putting them through their paces requires actually more maintenance. These things need to be in top condition to fluctuate up and down, causes a lot more issues. We are being driven down because if we stay up on full load, renewables cannot dispatch over the top of us. There's, there's not the same system strength, the inertia in the grid. That's why we're needed. That rotating mass is essential to frequency stability. You know, they can replicate these things with synchronous condensers to have that rotating mass. It can be done with inverters and it's costly. And this, all, this happened as we've gone along with no energy plan. All the generators were left stifling in the market. It was, it was kind of like whose boiler is going to hang on for the longest. Whoever lasts the longest is going to make money. The first ones that are off are, are not, and we were all left floundering in the market, trying to up and down, up. we're trying to compete against each other when we're all owned by the same person. The capacity from renewables is not consistent. So there's days when we're being relied on nearly 100%, and yet we are seeing the deterioration of these assets. We've had a couple of incidents in short succession 
where I am at Calloid. You know, they could become precarious places to work if we don't keep our foot on the throttle with safety and and trying to hold some people to account to say, hey, we, you know, we've got obligations here to meet. Also trying to attract people into these regional communities when they're being told they're closing down. So trying to maintain them and keep them in with the right skill sets is getting harder to find. And we're hearing that from the same guys down in Lithgow, like people are actually leaving, not coming. Of course, workers at Calide Power Station have first-hand experience of a unit blowing up and sending bits of shrapnel all over the place. They've also seen a water cooling tower collapse recently. Here's Mark Michaela from the Latrobe Valley in Victoria. A lot of the challenges and I suppose the concerns are is that the main thing that gets brought up where I work is when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, what's going to keep these things going for the renewables to keep the, the system going in the grid? That's really it in a nutshell, really. And that, that also the fact that renewables aren't really a long-term job for a lot of us getting phased out of coal mining. It's, it's not long-term job, and that's pretty much it. Here's Dan Smith and Peter Compton from the Mount Piper Power Station in Lithgow talking about the influx of renewables. It's definitely changed the way we operate the power stations. It's virtually opposite. What we used to do is basically cruise during the day and, and load up for morning and afternoon peaks. Now they, we, we try to get it the absolute minimum load. Out, a sunny, windy day, you've virtually got to turn your unit off. If, if you could, they would. But um, coal-fired power stations, that's not viable. But then as the sun goes down, the load-up rates and things like that are exponential to what they used to be. And I think it, it highlights, just that those issues highlight the reason for the plan and having a plan because renewables are the future and it's not to stop that but they've got to work hand in hand until we get to that future. And that, that becomes difficult through frequency controls and whether the renewables don't have, you know, the wind doesn't blow consistently all the time and the, and the clouds pass over the sun and frequency changes which makes the guys operating the job polar opposite to what it was 20, 30 years ago when it was just sit there and go. Rusty explained to me the workplace challenges he expects to see in coming years. Right at the moment we'll be running a Calloid Futures Group, just trying to get proactive with the transition and what we do. And at the same token we're going to be running an EBA negotiation about the efficiency of the of production and how we're going to manage that at the same time. So on one hand we're trying to work out how to exit and on the other hand we're trying to work out how to stay safe operation, viable, keep people attraction. We're going to be in a situation very shortly, potentially at Calide, where a lot of the senior operation staff are due to retire or vacate we maybe have to look at some retention packages and stuff to keep that experience and knowledge in the business while we transition to close. Because although there are some trainees starting to come on board, we've fought pretty hard to get some more numbers um, to try and get more trainees and get bums in seats across the whole maintenance workforce, that's been a big issue with our workforce numbers and our workforce plan. 
fill in the teams with the people we need to actually execute the work. We've got a good EBA. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's, a, it's one of the better EBAs. We've done a lot of hard work to get it and keep it, but it will, this will be a very testing time to see how the company and the government react. Knowing what's ahead, we're very lucky we, don't, we have a no force redundancy. We've got to be, acknowledge that could happen, but it's very unlikely, I would say, that they would go that way. It's more about trying to match the transition and how we, what we're going to do for the people as well as keep conditions there at the moment, it hardly seems in my mind that you can go and say we're going to look after these people as they exit the building but right now we want to take away things out of their entitlements. But um, I'm, I'm not um, naive, you know, it's, it's business. So we've got to be prepared, we'll have our, we'll have our log of claims and things we're looking, mostly I, I can't see us asking for a lot more so just security and what we're going to do for these people because it's inevitable and I think I've said it before yesterday I don't doubt the intent of this net zero I've just got strong concerns about the time frame at which they think they're going to achieve it and not and not cause great pain to the community. Mark McAuliffe talked about what he expects to see in his workplace in the future. The last year we had negotiations for our new EBA for 10 months. I had 28 meetings with management. Um, we had to fight a massive fight to have our redundancy upgraded because we know closures on the way in six years time and even sooner in 2026 overburden will be dug out. So redundancies will be coming in 26. Um, so you, we used to get three weeks for every year service capped at 60 weeks for a redundancy. And we had to fight for 10 months, which in turn was to put in protected action, work stoppages, uh, no temporary upgrades, a massive fight, probably the biggest fight that the blokes said they've ever been in down there. And we managed to successfully get four weeks for every year's service, capped at 104 weeks. And the blokes, as well as that, was, it was a good pay rise too. But the main challenges we had was our redundancy. So that was November 2021. But now, looking forward, November 2022, we managed to get a great deal redundancy-wise for the blokes. And now, after hearing what I heard in there from Jeremy about the hydrogen and needing 5 million tonnes of coal a year and 1,000 jobs in the Latrobe Valley from that, which I didn't know about, I'm over the moon walking out of here now to hear that. And the fact that Jeremy said that it could be a transition in 2028, 29, which he said will flow on from your lawn closing, bang, hopefully I could apply for that job in 28 when I'm finished from your lawn and I've got a job supplying coal for that project. So that's, um, that's, that's a positive, I'm, I'm wrapped, like I said. Dan and Peter are also seeing challenges on the horizon at the Mount Piper power station. We're actually at the youngest power station in New South Wales. It's 30 years old now, 30, 31 years old. Um, Maintenance for us is still, from my perspective, it's the same maintenance we were doing 15, 18 years ago. But to sit there and listen to what might happen to us in the future, and some of the stories about the lack of maintenance that are happening in other stations, is scary. Especially the guy yesterday who spoke about the furnace at positive pressure for six minutes. That's like, that's mind blowing. That's not how, they're not supposed to do that. That's, they're lucky they didn't burn that ball to the ground. 
very, very scary, and from a safety perspective too. You know, some of the scenarios that we've heard are actually quite scary. Like in our industry, it should never happen, but we are heading to the point. Um, outages are getting pushed. As more coal comes out, it's harder to schedule outages to do the um, large-scale maintenance that's required. So they tend to cut back on the, on the low-hanging fruit, um, but some of that low-hanging fruit will turn around and bite you on the arse in six months' time. And, and I think that's, for my mind, a big part of this authority is not just, yes, making sure that people are retrained and reskilled and early redundancies, pulled redundancies, all that sort of stuff is really good, but the authority also needs to ensure that they're holding the companies and the operators to maintain that maintenance and keep the standard at a safe level. Many delegates at the meeting want to see the federal government set up an energy transition authority to bring new industries and jobs to regions losing coal-fired power, help retrain local workers and manage the orderly closure of stations. I asked Rusty why this was important to him and his town, Biloela in Queensland. We need some facilitator, some middle ground to try and bring it all together. We've had the Calide Futures Group running for about 18 months and it's been a struggle to achieve much actual action items because we haven't had a plan. Even our leaders were lacking a plan from the government. They had as little input as what we've had. So we've both been in the same boat, both the company execs and the workforce kind of feel like Neither of us have been able to add too much because we've had no clear direction. The Workers' Charter is a great document, as we've heard Steve Smythe talk about yesterday. But if we don't have a regulatory authority that's going to bring it all together from the regions, from we're going to end up with haves and have-nots in these communities. It needs to be some equity across all the communities because there's only going to be so much money and so much in these funds and it has to go make sure that it gets to the right people in the right areas and done with some thought about not just saying, oh, there's votes there, that's where we're going to put the money. Mark says an energy transition authority was also a priority for him and his community in the Latrobe Valley. I'll start off with the nuts and bolts. I'm president of a junior football league down there and I love seeing the kids have fun, play footy, play cricket. And at the end of the day, if there's no jobs where I live, I know personally I'm probably going to have to shift to Queensland to work in another mine. And I don't want to do that. I want to stay where I am and I want everyone else to stay where I am. So it's important because what happened with Hazelwood with the closure, you drive through Morwell, the main street of Morwell next door to Hazelwood, and every second shop's got timber on the windows. Just every second shop's closed. Already in Maui, where I live, which is close to your lawn, banks left, right and centre are shutting down already. The only positive about where I live is there's a fish and chip shop every second corner and that's about it. So I'm just concerned about the community, local football clubs, cricket clubs, schools, um, house prices maybe taking a dive. I mean, we've all got houses in estates, which we spend a lot of money on. Your lawn closes and I need to sell and shift to Queensland Am I going to sell that house for what it's worth two years ago, in eight years' time? Probably not. That's just the way it's going to be, unfortunately. This has been great for my education as well. We all have different opinions in there, but I hope they realise by shutting down and not having 
plans in place early days. Uh, you seen yesterday it was 42 degrees in Adelaide and South Australia don't have any power plants and I looked at the NEM last night, $344 a, a megawatt they were paying out for power from Victoria. So um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Dan and Peter also reckon an energy transition authority is important for the Lithgow district in New South Wales. It, it has to happen. Whatever they call the authority, it has to happen. It has to have teeth. Because well, we're owned by a um, foreign multinational and quite frankly, that they don't, there's no obligation on them. So this authority, um, it, it's extremely important and particularly for our community to allow our community to transition. We, we've been a heavy industry community, coal mining and power stations. That's what our community was built on and we're losing it all. Lifco is built, like not only built, so Portland Cement Works, built Sydney, blast furnace, built steel in the 1800s. It, it's the, the, it is an industrious town, it always has been. When I first moved there 20 years ago, it was rife with, with industry. Now, um, it's all gone, the railways, the small arms factory, small. 14 coal mines is now down to three and one of them's 50 k's away. Two power stations is now one. We watched that happen, we watched that close. And it was interesting just before, someone said, oh, you know, they're lucky to have people go across the road and work at another power station in the Hunter Valley. Well, I don't call that luck, because there's 300 jobs gone. They're not coming back, they're, they're done. It's good that the people can retire and all the rest of that, but the, but the people coming through next, they need those 300 jobs. And, and without, the, without this authority or without the obligation being held and the, and, the, and the companies that operate being held to an obligation to, to look after the workers, there, there won't be anything. It will all be... Eventually you get to a point where there's not another power station or coal mine across the road. You're the last man standing. And where do they go? So when the power station across the road from us closed, yeah, most, well, most jobs went across, but did go across the road, and they were regional jobs. But at the end of the day, there was still probably one to two hundred jobs that are gone from the district. And then you hear the people talk about sporting teams, and yeah, you know, or the main street. The main street of Lifco is just empty shops. Um, as recent as two, three years ago, you had, you had six pubs in the main street. You now got two, and a, a big part of their income was transient workers coming to the area to fix coal mines, power stations, do railway work, and they're not getting that money to, to survive. And so they're closing their doors. And they relied on the transient workforce. Well, the cycle of heavy industry, essentially. And so then you, now you live in a town that, that is a drive-through town, and yeah, okay, the cafes make a lot of money on Sunday morning, but, um, you know, not everyone, you can't have a cafe, you can't have a main street full of cafes, you can still only have six cafes in the main street. And you know, I don't know about anyone else I work with, but I'm certainly you know, a waiter at a cafe or a barista <laughs> after having worked in heavy industry for, I don't for, think for I have 20, this, 20 plus yeah, years. I don't have the skill set. <laughs> it's the wrong skill set, and, <laughs> and, um, and probably my mannerisms don't even allow me to retrain. <laughs> but. Um, that obligation and accountability on the government to look after its people is, um, is, is so important to ensure that the town survives. Um, and as I say, this is a town that has built a considerable amount of this country. Um, it had the first steel works, it had a gas works. The show 40 k's away, there was kerosene. Um, if you name it, Lifco's done it at some point. 
um, and, and it really is time to, to pay it back. Dan Smith and Peter Compton from the Mount Piper Power Station in Lithgow, having the last word from the National Energy Delegates Meeting in Sydney. That's it for the MEU podcast for this episode. Talk to you next time.